0: Many of you know that I relax by, um, uh, among other things, by growing plants. I've got an allotment and a greenhouse and actually in a bag over there is a whole lot of rhubarb. If um, you uh, um, like rhubarb and you've not grown any yourself, I brought you some, some extra rhubarb as a, as a token um, from, that, from my allotment. So if I feed you in no other way this morning, then uh, grab some rhubarb and you'll get that. Actually 30 or even 20 years ago um, I think my, my family would have been, been amazed if you told, uh, told them that I would do that because I was always far too impatient as a little boy. All of us children were given a, um, uh, our own little corner of my dad's very large vegetable garden and my, my siblings grew flowers or tomatoes or at least they grew radishes but I left my bit to the weeds and uh, went off and scrumped my father's peas I would have escaped detection too if I hadn't left a pile of pea pods uh, underneath them which um, gave me away. But actually over the years I have uh, learned the uh, patient pleasure of nurturing plants and harvesting a crop. I'm still distinctly slapdash by (laughs) comparison with some of the uh, other people on the allotments. But I have learned a few things. I've learned over watering kills delicate seedlings. I've learned that one night of cold can uh, arrest the growth of a plant for weeks. I've learned that if you forget to repot plants, then they uh, um, uh, end up rather stunted. I've learned that a a fertilizer applied at the right time can make a plant wonderfully fruitful at the wrong wrong time can ruin it. I've learned that some uh, small weeds left untended can soon become a complete forest I've learned that some weeds need roots digging out and some weeds just need a quick hoe I've learned all sorts of things and when I return to my pastoral work I see exactly the same thing I see uh, people who are delicate seedlings needing careful nurture or others that actually frankly need to be hardened off and learn to face the frosts, I see uh, some people becoming exhausted, desperately reaching for the light, others uh, who found strong sunshine and are flourishing, I see some people who need careful watering, I, need, uh, I see others who uh, frankly need to learn to send their own roots down much deeper into the soil to find their own supplies. I wonder what sort of plants we're growing into. Well, the Bible, I think, suggests that healthy Christians are like trees. Psalm uh, 1 verse 3, a person who loves God is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Christians, are uh, healthy Christians at least, are like trees because they have deep roots which always have access to water. They are like trees because they yield fruit at their proper time. They are l- like trees because adversity doesn't make them wither. I've actually chosen to end our series on the Apostle Paul's prayers by looking at, uh, at this passage for a specific reason. You may have actually noticed that it's not specifically about prayer. Now, this morning we're not going to look at um, at prayer itself. We're actually going to look at what a life of prayer produces in a person. 2 Timothy is the uh, last letter that we have from the hand of the Apostle Paul. He's in prison in Rome, facing almost certain death, but this letter is not the last letter desperate, despairing letter of a man on death row. This letter is, is, is vid- brimming with vitality, it is planning for the future, albeit actually a future without him. It's not tainted by bitterness, it's not dominated by regret, nor actually even in, in many ways does Paul seem limited by the chains that bind him, by the walls that surround him, by the uh, executioner's sword that is about to fall. He has grown actually into a mighty, fruitful tree that has no fear of adversity, no fear even of death itself. He has borne much fruit in his life and amazingly his life will continue to bear fruit long after he himself is in glory we have before us a wonderful example of someone who grew healthily as the Bible calls us all to. And what was it that grew this man into such a towering figure? Well, again and again when Paul talks about his own Christian life, he talks about a variety of things, but his dominant theme seems to be his prayer life. This morning then, we're going to uh, finish this this series on Paul's prayer by, by looking at this last chapter, this last will and testament that the Apostle Paul left. And see, what has, and ask the question, what has a life of prayer achieved in this man? First of all, Um, It's very clear from this uh, uh, this chapter that uh, a life of prayer has generated in the Apostle a series of convictions about the future. Verse 3, for instance. The time will come... When men will not put up with sound doctrine, Instead instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. According to Paul, actually a Bible teacher who scratches where we itch is a false teacher. because actually our desires and our priorities are not necessarily the desires and priorities of God. And Paul has become uh, deeply aware over the years of this human tendency to shy away from what he describes as sound doctrine and fill our ears with what suits us, what tickles us. Indeed he says there will always be A great number of teachers who will be only too willing to oblige to scratch where we itch. And notice he's not actually talking primarily about the pagan world in general of his day, which had rejected Christ uh, outright. That went without saying. No, these people he's talking about are people who turn their ears away, who turn aside. He's talking about churches, Christians, which stop teaching and learning the truth. And uh, he has a conviction about what the solution to that is as well. He spells it out in absolutely solemn terms. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. That phrase, preach the word, the NIV gives a capital W to um, word, I think indicating an ambiguity that is there in the text. Does Paul mean preach the word of God, small w, word, the Bible? Or does Paul mean preach the word of God, big w word, Jesus himself, the word made flesh? Perhaps Paul left that just to hang in the air, because he meant both. He certainly instructs Timothy elsewhere to make sure that he preaches what he calls the whole counsel of God and rightly divides that word. But he knows that if Timothy does that, he will come again, come back again and again and again to the person of Jesus, to the living Word made flesh, because He is absolutely at the center. Of what God wants to say to us, for Paul actually, the future, after he uh, uh, was gone to glory, depended on that word being proclaimed. but a large proportion of us here are, are uh, young as I get older I see it as a larger and larger proportion. Perhaps we're wondering what to do with our lives. Consider this mature reflection of a man of prayer. Preach the word. There, there may be some here that have the specific gifts to be pastor-teacher. There is no greater privilege than devoting ourselves to, 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 to that task. But let's be clear about it. Uh, many of us will rise naturally over the years to uh, become leading figures in, uh, in the churches in which we, uh, we serve. How will you serve God in that church? Will you be content in that church, just to let the the church sort of drift into a self-congratulatory little huddle where uh, um, leaders say exactly what everyone wants to hear, and uh, uh, the others applaud? Or will you stand up in that church and say, "No, we must keep God's word central." We must must keep Jesus Christ central. And what are you doing now, at this stage of your life, to prepare yourself for that? Do you really have a clear grasp of scripture? Are you devoting yourself to making sure that, that you know God's word? great preacher Spurgeon used to de- describe um, becoming um, uh, more, more, uh, more deeply um, uh, influenced by God's word as uh, having our blood run bibline. Is that a commitment to you? At our um, annual church meeting actually we uh, unanimously endorsed a set of priorities for our next few years as a church and one of those priorities was actually training up the next generation of leaders. I think the un- unanimity of that vote deeply encouraged me that we as, as, a, as a whole church, everyone at every, uh, in every situation is committed to um, seeing Bible teachers and other people who may not be uh, um, specifically devoting themselves to uh, to, to, uh, full-time teaching of the Bible. Nevertheless, being equipped to lead God's church in the next generation. The Apostle would be delighted. His life of prayer had led him to the conviction that this was vital. Central, but it's actually broader. I've come to see uh, uh, to realize something that maybe it may have been completely obvious. It's actually broader than than uh, than just actually identifying and helping people with uh, with specific gifts. The end point, you see, in Paul's vision, is not just to train up and raise up some leaders. The end point is to have congregations of people who are devoted to serving Christ with all their hearts and all their lives. That's why he um, tells Peter and uh, 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 Timothy not just to, um, uh, um, to proclaim the word into a vacuum, but actually within the church, in churches in which he uh, will be serving, to uh, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. He will not have achieved his vision until there are groups of people who are committed to obeying the Word of God and living the Word of God, which means absolutely every one of us. Every single one of us, whatever our gifts, is actually vital to the apostles' strategy and vision for the future. I am, I, I'm convinced, actually, that we've become, sometimes, evangelicals, rather obsessed about, about um, how God might use specifically gifted individuals. doesn't actually seem to be the primary strategy that God, that, that, that God lays out in the New Testament. Primary, God's primary strategy seems, in fact, to have bodies of believers, every one of them, united in following Christ. Bearing witness as, as the body of Christ. to the truth of the gospel. I don't want you to make you too proud or, or encourage you to relax because um, I'm certain we've, none of us got it all sussed. We have weaknesses here as a church. But I do keep hearing people. Um, who come into contact with with the church, saying that they see a quality in people's lives here that they do not see elsewhere. And I'm delighted about that. It must mean that at some level we have learned to be corrected, to be rebuked. We have learned the encouragement of knowing the Scriptures. But patiently and carefully we are reading God's Word and seeking to be shaped by it. First thing a life of prayer has generated in Paul then is an absolutely clear conviction about what is important and what is strategic for the future of God's witness in his world. And that is that God's people should read this word and obey it and live it. Secondly, uh, I want to show you uh, another aspect of this chapter that uh, we, we, we didn't read in the reading. Verses 9 to 18. It's so what uh, one can only describe, I think, as a, as a, as a profound realism about his life. Let me just read uh, most of it to you for instance. Do your best to come to me quickly for Demas because he loved this world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to uh, Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. At at my first defence, my first trial, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me may it not be held against them. It's a sorry list of difficulties in many ways. Former friends have left him. Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me, says Paul. Other friends like Crescens, Titus, Tychicus, are simply absent because of the needs of ministry. Frankly, it can be lonely serving Christ. Paul faced the reality that the whole of the church of Rome had failed to support him at this earlier trial that he 'd already had at my first defense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. he says. And of course, there were others um, who actively opposed the gospel. Alexander the metal worker has done me a great deal of harm. What I want you to see is that life, a life of prayer, does not automatically remove the painful difficulties of this life. Did Paul pray for Demas? Of course he did. But Demas still loved this world. Did Paul pray for the Roman church? Of course he did. But they still lacked the courage to support him at his trial. Did Paul pray against Alexander the metal worker? Of course he did. But this man still did him a great deal of damage. A mature life of prayer is actually not a life where all of our prayers are automatically answered yes. At least that wasn't in Paul's experience. Understandably, I think one of the biggest things that stops us praying is that we we feel we haven't got answers that we want. Actually, I think one of the things that happens to us is we often don't see the positive answers that God gives. I told you last week that I uh, keep a rough record of what I'm praying for at any one point. It's fascinating to go back and look at what I was praying for and see what a high proportion of my prayers have been answered. What happened was that in the uh, course of events, It just seemed to happen completely naturally. I'd forgotten that I was praying about it when it seemed impossible. I would have never noticed that God had done it. But alongside those answers, those positive answers that God does give, there are painful no's sometimes, as Paul knew. Somehow Paul has found the resources in himself not to be bitter and vengeful he's not bitter that this Roman church deserted him may it not be held against them he says he's not seeking personal revenge against Alexander the metal worker the Lord will repay him for what he's done he says how did he rise above those uh, disappointments he tells us Verses 17 and 18. Describing his, uh, his trial that he'd been through in Rome. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me the strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Through his prayer life, though he didn't always get the answer yes, he did come to know the presence of God in his life. And God gave him strength. His friends deserted him but God didn't. God comforted him, strengthened him, rescued him and he is confident will bring him safely home. Now that, that's no, no superficial name it and claim it codswallop. Paul makes it plain. He's absolutely certain he's going to be executed. He's going to be brought safely home at the hands of a public executioner. He is safe because his relationship with God, unlike his neck, is unseverable. And that has deeply shaped and transformed his life. That has given him the power to forgive people. given him the patience to wait for God to work his purposes out it's given him the strength to keep going and more than that actually it's given him a joy that is so deep that actually he can't help but exclaim at the end of this as he thinks about his impending death to him be glory forever and ever Amen. That's what a life of prayer achieves. It brings with it a deep realization of the real difficulties of life. This great father of the Christian church lived through lots and lots of difficulties. but it rings with it an incredible, solid joy that God stands alongside us and will never let us go. Realism, then, about the present, which is vitally important for us and that will grow as we pray in this life. But then in uh, verses 6 to 8, almost the, the centrepiece I'm sure of this, uh, the, this chapter, it has brought him contentment at the end of his life. Paul's actually right up to the end of his life, still living sacrificially, verse uh, 6 uh, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. In the Old Testament, a drink, drink offering was poured out on the altar over the uh, main um, sacrifice as a sort of joyful extra. It actually wasn't, wasn't offered whilst they were wandering in the wilderness, interestingly. It was something that was added to uh, their sacrifices once they came and lived in the Promised Land once they actually began to rejoice fully in the deliverance that, uh, uh, that, that God had given them. Well, my life's like that, says Paul. Christ has performed the fundamental sacrifice. But I'm so nearly home, I'm tasting the, the, the good things of the kingdom, that I'm joyfully pouring out my life to the very end as a sort of extra on top that I'm delighted to give. And there is no such thing as retirement in the Christian life. We may need to readjust exactly how we live our lives for Christ. But we are called to pour out our lives for him to the very end. But as Paul faces the end, he is deeply content about his life. Look at verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Notice he doesn't list the churches he's planted or the converts he's made. He doesn't have a long list of, uh, uh, of all sorts of glorious a- a- achievements. He has a very, very simple basic assessment of his life. Life has been a struggle, a fight, but he's fought it. Life has been a race, a marathon, but he's finished it. Life has been actually one long discipline of simply trusting Christ. But he has kept that faith. And now where's the... uh, The bell is about to to, uh, ring at the end of the final round or uh, as his breast is about to to breach the tape at the end of the race. He's got something to look forward to. Verse 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. We none of us know how much longer we've got to live. Some of us here will have less than a decade. Some of us here may have six decades or more to live. However much time you have left, Fight that good fight. Run that race to the end. Keep that faith. It is the central calling we have. There is nothing more important. Imagine something with me. Perhaps um, one day you and I will uh, um, meet many years from now in a quaint little old people's home and um, we'll put our teeth in turn up our hearing aid and start to talk about those distant days when we met in that school and uh, then in a moment of uh, animation that's, that's not been seen in our decrepit old bodies for many a day, we'll both remember today. And our fading eyes will meet. And they'll sparkle. There have been struggles. The race has been long and there have been times when we have been tempted to give up trusting Christ. But we're glowing with contentment because we have fought the good fight. We have finished the race. We have kept the faith. And then I'll turn to you and I'll say how did you keep going? And you'll say well that was easy. It was prayer.